The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today it is my honor to welcome my guest, Dr. Martin Blazer. Dr. Blazer is both a physician and microbiologist. He holds the Henry Rutgers Chair of the Human Microbiome at Rutgers University, where he also serves as Professor of Medicine and Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and as Director of the Center for Advanced Biotechnology and Medicine. Prior to his position at Rutgers, Dr. Blazer served as Chair of the Department of Medicine at NYU. Over the last 20 years, Dr. Blazer has been studying the relationship of the human microbiome with health and important diseases, including asthma, obesity, diabetes, cancer, as well as the gut-brain axis. He currently serves as chair of the Presidential Advisory Council for Combating Antibiotic-Resistant Bacteria. In addition to hundreds of journal articles, Dr. Blazer is the author of Missing Microbes, a book that is targeted to general audiences and has been translated into 20 languages. His work is most recently highlighted in the documentary film Invisible Extinction, which spotlights his extraordinary work along with that of his microbiologist wife, Dr. Gloria Dominguez-Bello, as they endeavor to save the vanishing microbes that are essential for our survival. Welcome, Dr. Blazer. It is an honor to have you here. Thank you so much for your very kind introduction. Well, I am curious to know the very beginnings of your interest in microbiology as well as the microbiome. What sparked your interest? Like many things, it was an accident. I was training in internal medicine in Denver, Colorado. I was finishing my training and I thought I should have some kind of specialty. And uh, I wanted to stay in Denver, so I went to the chiefs of the different departments at the University of Colorado and asked if they had any openings for fellowship. And since it was very late, none of them had any openings. They had filled the positions like more than a year earlier. And then on May 15th, the uh, director of infectious disease called me. He said, we have an unexpected opening for July 1st. And I said, great, I'll take it. About two weeks later, the chief of endocrine called me and he said, we have an opening. And a few weeks later, the chief of clinical immunology called me and said, we have an opening. So I started my fellowship in infectious diseases on July 1st, and it was entirely based on who dropped out of their fellowship first. And that's how it happened. And on July 10th, I saw a patient with a a very serious infection due to a bacteria that I had never heard of called Campylobacter fetus. And in essence, and that was in July 1977, and in essence, I have been following that thread ever since. Wow. Well, your research is really a benefit to mankind. And I am fascinated by the work that you presented both in Missing Microbes and, of course, this film. You describe antibiotics as a double-edged sword. What do you mean by that? 
Well, as a physician and as an infectious disease physician, I know very well how wonderful antibiotics can be. Antibiotics can be life-saving and they have saved so many lives of people who have terrible infections and, you know, walk out of the hospital. It's just wonderful. And so I think we all know that. And when, since the time that antibiotics came into medicine in the 1940s to the present, the public and the profession views antibiotics as nothing short of miraculous. Antibiotics are a miracle. And as a result, we have been using antibiotics more and more and more, tremendously more. And I, I can give you some numbers, but for not just for life-threatening infections, but for less severe infections and very mild infections, and even infections that aren't due to bacteria. So most of the use of antibiotics are for very marginal situations and in which their benefit is zero or close to zero. And so on the one hand, we are overestimating how good they are. And on the other hand, it's becoming clear that antibiotics have costs. They have biological costs, that they have consequences because of their effects on the human microbiome. And we have completely underestimated the cost. So there's a real lack of transparency where we think they're really wonderful. We think that they're harmless. And so patients go to the doctor and say, you know, I don't feel well, give me an antibiotic. And neither the doctor nor the patient really appreciates that the equation is out of, out of order. It really is. Well, you do provide numbers, and I attended one of the presentations you gave for the American Society for Microbiology in 2016, and I was flabbergasted to hear that by the age of 10, children have received at least 10 courses of antibiotics, and the rates of C-sections also are a bit mind-boggling. Is it one out of three women in the United States give birth by C-section? And of course, giving birth by C-section means that either the mother or the baby will be exposed to antibiotics. Well, first, those data about the 10 course of antibiotics, that's based on CDC data. And that's the average child. Of course, there are some children who get a lot more and some who get less, but that's, that's across all the children in the United States. And in, in some countries in the world, even more kids are getting antibiotics. And C-sections, you're right. That's the current rate of C-sections in the U.S. is around 32%, about one baby in three. There are countries in the world where more than 50% of the babies are born by C-section. In Ecuador, in Iran, in urban China, it's like 70 or 80% of women are giving birth by C-section. In Brazil, it's in Rio de Janeiro, it's like 80%. In Rome, it's about 80%. So C-section has become the new norm. And there are two problems with C-section. Well, two problems in regard to the microbiome. The first is that just about everybody who gets a C-section gets antibiotics, a, a, a hefty dose of antibiotics. And second is that part of nature, we humans are mammals and we are born in a womb, we're sterile, and then we, we pass through the birth canal. And at that time, we are covered by microbes from mom. We swallow those microbes, and those become our founding microbes. Well, kids born by C-section miss that whole passage, and they, their microbiome doesn't really normalize for quite some time. So C-section is, is a double hit. Mm -hmm. I focus on 
childhood exposures, because if I'm understanding your research correctly, exposure to antibiotics during childhood is especially damaging. And I know we've been talking about the microbiome, but specifically we're talking about the microbiota or the bacteria that live in our guts. Can you just briefly tell us why childhood makes us so vulnerable to the effects of antibiotics? Yeah, I'm happy to. And this this is kind of like, it begins with a, a lesson in biology. And that is that microbes were on this planet before any plants or animals. All the animals and plants evolved in a world that already had microbes, and they had to begin to evolve in relation to them. And every animal has their own microbiome. These are the organisms that live in and on them. And so there's a human microbiome, and there's a cow microbiome, and a horse microbiome. And it's now clear that human life is a partnership between us and our microbes. We've evolved this way over millions of years. We've evolved together. And they are just a fundamental part of human biology. And the reason that we focus on early life is that early life is the most important time of life. That's when babies develop. They develop their metabolism. They develop their immunity. They develop their cognition, their brain. We know this. This is this is babies develop. And it's now clear that the microbiome is an important component of normal human development. So if the baby is exposed to antibiotics or doesn't get the right microbiome from their mother because they were born by C-section, then the partnership is wrong. And the, the messages that the microbes are giving to human cells are incorrect. They're speaking a different language. And so development is abnormal. And mm. that's why we're so concerned. And the, the second part of this is that there are many diseases that begin in childhood that have been increasing rather dramatically during the antibiotic era, such as asthma and allergies and food allergies and overweight and obesity and neurodevelopmental problems like autism and ADHD. And there are, there are a number of other diseases as well. They've all been going up over these last 70 or 80 years. While humans are exposed for the first time ever to large doses of antibiotics, and so the question is, is there any relationship? And our work and that of others have said, yes, there's many relationships. And we believe that this is one of the reasons that these epidemics have come on our scene over these last decades. Mm. Now, if a child, if an infant is exposed to an antibiotic, does it make a difference if the mother breastfeeds or not? Yeah. So breastfeeding is really important. I mean, again, we humans are mammals. We're, we're born in a womb, and then we are nursed by mom with milk. This is what all mammals have been doing for the last 100 million years. And nature has designed milk to be extremely nutritious for the baby and for the baby's beneficial microbes. There are compounds in human milk that baby can't digest, but certain microbes can. And the strong belief is that they're there to nourish those beneficial microbes as kind of part of that partnership. We've outsourced a number of functions to our microbes, and now, and now we're feeding them. So breast milk is as good a food as, as is imaginable. And our attempts 
to make a substitute based on formula are just not nearly as good. And as a proof, and to answer your question, it's now becoming clear that even after the damage caused by antibiotics or by C-section, breast milk is restorative. It's not completely restorative, but it helps a lot. I was going to ask you about its restorative properties. So thank you for specifying that. Well, in your presentation for the American Society for Microbiology, you showed the CDC's maps on obesity. And I too, as a dietitian, have been studying those maps for decades and thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? The rates of obesity are escalating. And with my own ignorance, I was really focused on food marketing and fast food. I hadn't even considered the role of the microbiome or the microbiota in the gut. Why don't you walk us through your thinking on how damage to the microbiota has maybe contributed to that rise in obesity? Yeah, well, you know, the, the first thing to say about the CDC maps on obesity is that there are big differences between the states of the United States. And so states in the South, in the Midwest, very high rates of obesity. Uh, and uh, states on the West Coast, for example, have much lower rates. And what's interesting is that if you now look at the CDC map, so I've just been describing the CDC map on, on obesity. If you look at the CDC map on antibiotic use in those same states, it's almost an identical map. I mean, when I first saw this, I, I was shocked. I just could not believe it because there's so strong an overlap. And these trends have been stable for years. In states, in, in the deep South and into the Midwest, antibiotic use is about twice as high per capita, for example, as in states in the West Coast. Now, you might say, well, the people you know in the South and the Midwest, they're sicker. But there is not a 100% difference in the rate of serious bacterial infections between uh, South and West. This reflects the culture and the practice of medicine. So there's a smoking gun there that suggests maybe antibiotics have something to do with obesity. And for me, the big insight came about 20 years ago when I was trying to counsel a student who was interested in some career changes. And I said to the student, I said, well, you know that farmers feed antibiotics to their livestock to fatten them up as growth promoters. You probably know that this has been going on for the last 75 years or so. Mm -hmm. And the reason that the farmers do it is because it works. Animals gain weight more quickly and they come to market more quickly. It works in chickens. It works in turkeys, in cows, in sheep, in goats, in pigs, just about every animal that we use domestically, antibiotics promote their growth. And, and then I thought to myself, wow, if that's happening, and also the farmers found that just about any antibacterial that they used did it. Antifungals do not work. Antivirals do not work. And they also found that the earlier in life they started the antibiotic, the more profound the effect. And I thought to myself, wow, maybe this is what we're doing to our kids. By giving them antibiotics early in life, we are inadvertently promoting their growth. And so about 15 years ago, we started to do experiments to test this hypothesis in mice. And we have lots of data that indicates that this is correct, that if we give mice antibiotics early in life, uh, they get fatter. And the condition is made worse if those animals also eat a high-fat diet. 
That's right. If we give mice a high fat diet, they get fat. If we put them on antibiotics, they get fat. And if we put them on both together, they get very fat. There's a synergy between those two different effects. The antibiotic potentiates the effect of the high fat diet. Wow. All right. We are halfway through. So let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking today with Dr. Martin Blazer, physician, microbiologist, the Henry Rutgers Chair of the Human Microbiome at Rutgers University. He's the author of Missing Microbes and the subject, along with his wife, of the documentary film, The Invisible Extinction. I want to talk about the way you describe this invisible extinction. You liken the loss of our gut microbes to the loss of ice that we've seen with climate change. Why did you make that analogy? Yeah, I've been thinking about this for many years. And, you know, you you can think of climate change as the response to human activities on a macroecological scale. It's affecting the whole world. And what I see is that we're doing something very parallel to the human body, but on a micro scale. So this is a micro ecological change, but it's happening all over the world. You know, antibiotics are everywhere. We tried to find people who are not on antibiotics and it's almost impossible. My wife, Gloria, has done research on a group of Amerindians in the Amazonian jungle on their first exposure ever to antibiotics. It's very hard to find such people. And what was interesting and alarming is those people had twice the diversity of their microbiome as we have. If the microbiome is a zoo, their zoo was twice as big as ours. And since that time, there've been a number of other studies that have confirmed this kind of observation. And it's consistent with the idea that we have lost a lot of diversity. And if you just think about those people in the jungle and ourselves, it suggests that we have already lost 50% of our diversity. It's like the ice cap is melting. And it's been happening silently. Nobody has really been aware of it, uh, but it's been going on all this time. Mm. All right. If we've lost half, is it possible to get it back? I hope so. I hope so. But I, I don't think it's, it's going to be that. It's not going to be that easy. We have we've been digging a hole for the last 80 years. Now, that's about how long the antibiotic era has been. And some of our work and work of other scientists indicate that it's getting worse generation by generation. It's compounding by generation. A big part of our microbiome is what we get from our mother. And she got it from her mother and so on and so forth. But if if the mother's microbiome is impacted, then she has less to pass on to the next generation and so on and so forth. And so how will we restore it? Well, first we have to identify what are the really important microbes that we've lost that have disappeared. And we have identified several of them, and there are more, but the number is is not small. We, As I said, we've lost half of our diversity. It will be hard to get it back one at a time or two at a time, but there could be some candidates for that. And the other thing is that when you lose microbes, there's an old saying, nature abhors a vacuum. So when you lost microbes, some other guys moved in what we call opportunistic organisms. So first, we're going to have to dislodge the opportunists. They're they're like squatters, and we'll have to dislodge them. And then we'll have to reintroduce our ancient microbes back. Hmm. You described something that is truly frightening, and you call it the antibiotic winter. 
But I think it's important for us to mention because I remember the first time I learned that the majority of our immune system is in our gut. And if you think about the pandemic that we are still moving through and the predictions that there will be another pandemic, and I consider the fact that we've lost so much of our immune function in our guts. Tell me your thinking on this. Yeah, well, in fact, my book, Missing Microbes, I actually wanted to call it Antibiotic Winter, but the publisher thought it would be too scary. (laughs) So I I changed it to Missing Microbes and Antibiotic Winter is chapter 15. So the idea is that, as I said, we have co-evolved with our microbiome. It is our partner and it's part of our defenses. It's like the Coast Guard. It's helping us fight invaders. And so in the 1950s, scientists did studies where they gave mice salmonella and they saw that mice had a lot of resistance to salmonella. It would take 100,000 or a million salmonella organisms to kill the mouse. But if you pre-treated the mouse with an antibiotic and disrupted their microbiome, you could kill the mouse with 10 salmonella. And that's that's a very graphic but true example of how important a good coastal defense is as provided by my, our microbiome. So, so here we've been witnessing how our microbiome is going downhill. And, you know, I wrote Missing Microbes in 2012, well before COVID, but I was worried that we could have a pandemic that would just sweep across like a river flooding over its banks because we've lost our resistance in a world where, of course, with transportation, you know, we're only two or three days away from any village in the world. So in that thread, COVID is receding and not fast enough, but it's it's receding. But there will be new COVIDs in the future. We just don't know what they are, whether they'll be viruses or fungi or bacteria. But the human history is full of epidemics. So Mm -hmm. there's no way to think that we're going to escape epidemics. And Our strong defense is a healthy microbiome. Absolutely. You know, I want to talk about agriculture for a moment because it's critically important that we talk about the antibiotics, certainly that are given to livestock, the antibiotic resistant organisms that result from those, as well as the kinds of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides that are used increasingly in our environment. They are mostly attached to genetically engineered commodity crops that are engineered to withstand toxins. So in agriculture, glyphosate, for example, is an herbicide that is used widely on genetically engineered crops. I have heard it described as an antibiotic. So not only are we being exposed to antibiotics through the medical system, but we're also being exposed through our diet and residues on our food. And I wonder if you've given any thought to the additional impact from these particular compounds in our diet. Yeah, I have. In fact, at one point we did some research on triclosan, which Mm. is present in many products in in toothpaste and mouthwash and just many different products. It also is an antibacterial. And as you say, glyphosate has been developed and produced as a pesticide, but it is also a microbicide as well. So yes, these all have impact. And I focus on antibiotics because I think it has the biggest effect on people because we're taking it in in industrial doses. And again, on a scale so that You know, in the United States today, there are about 760 
courses of antibiotics for every thousand people every year. So that's three courses for every four people across the United States year after year. Actually, it was a little higher a few years ago. And so we've made some progress. But our exposure to antibiotics is enormous, but it is not the only actor. And and I, I think you're right to focus on some of these other chemical additives that are basically poisoning our planet. They're poisoning our soil. And, and to some degree, they're poisoning the human body. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about your film for a moment because there are many stories that you tell in the film that are critically important, including a child in China with autism who was seeing some success with some fecal transplant treatment. There was another woman who had C. diff, Clostridium difficile, and she was treated with a fecal transplant. Only she was able to beat the infection, but she developed obesity. So I want to talk about using fecal transplants as curative, but with caution. Yeah. Well, first, I want to just start by saying that The Invisible Extinction is a wonderful film. It's not my film or my wife's film. Our work is featured in that film, but that was made by independent filmmakers, Steve Lawrence and Sarah Shank. We worked with them for eight years because they they are also interested in getting out the same kinds of messages that we're discussing. And they have found anecdotes that really help illustrate the story, such as, as the woman who was a nurse who got a transplant and then gained a lot of weight after the transplant. And then she participated in a clinical trial to see if she could turn it around, a clinical trial involving a fecal transplant. I'm not going to be a spoiler, so I'm not going to tell you what happened. And the case of the child in China who was autistic, uh, who also got a fecal transplant, these are anecdotes. They're to, to just bring these issues to people's attention. And of course, they're very human stories as well. And one of the things I like about the movie, The Invisible Extinction, is that it's a very human movie. They take science and they've really humanized it a lot. I agree. And I recommend it to everyone. I will provide a link to it. It's www.theinvisibleextinction.com. And I want to give the last minute to you. I want to give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with any last thoughts. I just want to say that The Invisible Extinction is available on Amazon and Google and iTunes and uh, Vimeo. So people can view it. You have to pay a few dollars for it, but it it goes to help pay the film bankers back for all the money they laid out. It's a great investment. My last thought is that my wife, Maria Gloria Dominguez, is the president of an organization called the Microbiota Vault. It's a nonprofit. It's a, a global effort to preserve the microbiome that is disappearing so that our children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will have microbes to replenish before they're they're kind of wiped out of the planet. It's modeled after the seed vault, which is present in, in uh, Norway, which preserves the seeds of humankind. We want to preserve the seeds, the, the microbiota of humankind. And that's also featured in the invisible extinction. 
Absolutely. It's a fabulous film. Dr. Blazer, we're out of time, but I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN in Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Martin Blazer, physician, microbiologist based at Rutgers University in New Jersey. He is the author of Missing Microbes, and his wife and Dr. Blazer are the subject of the documentary film, the Invisible Extinction. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Blazer, and all of your critical work. Thanks so much for your kind words and your wonderful questions, and keep up your good work. Thank you. <laughs>